The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. If you or someone you know has a child with autism in their family, answers and support can be hard to come by. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. We will offer practical information for parents of children of all ages, as well as explore treatment topics and recent research related to autism. Now, here is this week's host. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I'm the Vice President of Business Development at Autism Spectrum Therapies, an agency that provides ABA, OT, speech, all, tor- all sorts of different services uh, to kids with autism and individuals with special needs. Uh, I'm also a board-certified behavior analyst with close to a dozen years now of experience uh, working with individuals with special needs and uh, providing ABA services. Um, Really excited about this week's show. We're actually uh, pre-recording this one. Uh, I I can't be live today, so we're recording this one uh, on a Friday. It's actually the Friday of Calaba, so we're going to have a, an incredible guest with us in a little bit um, who's actually going to call us from Calaba, and, uh, and we'll talk to her um, in our next segment. But um, something about Calaba kind of gets me going, gets me inspired. It's, it's the, it's the local state ABA conference and it, they've been putting this on for over 30 years and it, it rotates across Northern California and Southern California. Um, but what's great about this conference is they, they really do a good job of bringing in, uh, national guests. Um, people are coming from across the country to speak and, uh, I, I love that. And, uh, this year we have a, a lot of East Coasters coming in, and and that's that's pretty exciting for me. I, uh, you know, you guys know I'm, I'm an East Coaster. Uh, as much as I've been here now for nine years, and and I'm from LA, I, I still resonate with uh, New York and and particularly Boston, which I just had so much fun uh, living and working in. Um, and you know, most weeks I have guests on the show, and I ask them questions and, you know, you guys all know, I, I typically talk about or ask them uh, how they got into ABA. And, and I kind of realized uh, last week after uh, talking to Jim Ball that I don't know if I've ever told you guys my story. So I uh, wanted to, since it was a short week and, and since I've kind of reminiscing a bit of Calaba, kind of share with you guys where I started from. And um, one of the things that was pretty funny is I got a lot of uh, compliments after our show with Jim last week about uh, the show and and how much uh, a lot of you enjoyed it and some of my friends who listened said that they really enjoyed it because they felt like I was talking to a friend I was talking to myself in a way um, and and that's because Jim's story is actually really similar to mine because uh, I actually wanted to be uh, a history teacher as well uh, I went to a, a college in Connecticut called Wesleyan and 
was a history major, and I loved, loved, loved American history. Um, I loved sports. I was a football player there, too. And uh, I actually wrote my, my thesis to uh, graduate about Jackie Robinson and his impact in the civil rights movement um, and how important uh, his uh, becoming the first African-American baseball player was in um, the civil rights movement, uh, which him crossing happened in 1947 versus, um, you know, how much earlier that was compared to all the uh, legislation and all of the events of the 60s that that really led to the the big change in our country. Um, But I loved history. And and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach American history. And I uh, reluctantly took some classes to try and become a doctor because my mom always wanted a, a doctor for her son. And that's what she pushed me towards day after day for a lot of years. And um, I actually took the exam to get into medical school and I did pretty well. But when I was studying for it, it became clear to me that that was not right for me. Um, I would hear everyone's stories. I would hear people talk about why they wanted to be a doctor. And I didn't have that story. I, I didn't have any story. I, I just was kind of doing it for the sake of doing it. But um, I'd spent a couple of years working with um, individuals with Alzheimer's. Um, I worked at a, a hospital in my hometown of, uh, of New City, New York. It was actually right next to it uh, in Pomona, New York. And I uh, worked there for a couple of summers and had this great time. And I worked with individuals with Alzheimer's. I worked with just different people in, in their later years uh, in the geriatric facility there. And I was doing social recreational therapy. Um, part of it was fun and games and, and barbecues. And part of it was uh, working on just more social interaction. And I got to know the people there. And I got to know the... Um, the residents who, who lived there, and it, w- it was great. I had a great, great time. And after the med school or, or uh, I guess, entrance exam uh, debacle, I decided to try and take a job working still with senior citizens uh, who were in a hospital setting who had uh, various degrees of mental illness, um, different diagnoses, and uh, work with them on social skills and uh, vocational skills to help them transition into group homes and um, and assisted living. And again, really challenging, but really rewarding. And figured there's something here. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing yet. I didn't understand the science of this at all. And uh, I just knew I liked working with people and I liked interacting with people and I liked to learn about what, what their lives were like. So I took a job uh, or I went to a job fair where I got offered a job at uh, the New England Center for Children, which I've told you guys about, which if you're in the Massachusetts area, I can't stress enough what a great program they have. Uh, There's a lot of good programs out in in the Boston area, um, but this is the one I can speak to from personal experience. And they offered me a job in their residential unit, and I didn't really know what autism was, and I didn't really know what ABA was. Apparently, I'd been doing it for quite a while, but without a, a real BCBA really teaching me and explaining it to me. And um, I went there, and I resisted it. And I, I loved the kids. I mean, I loved the kids. Working with 15 to 22-year-olds was like the best thing I could have done. It was perfect. I was 23. My kids were like 18, 19, and we could relate to one another. And I think they enjoyed having a guy and, and having kind of a sporty guy was, was a good fit. And, um, but I resisted the ABA 
And one day it clicked. It it clicked and I said, This is this is amazing. I, I don't know quite get all of this yet, but there's something here. And I think it was really when um I started to see the kids' progress. I, I feel like we've heard a lot of our speakers on the show talk about when it really clicks for a parent, it's when they see that progress. Um, and I, I think I was the same way as a young uh, behavior analyst. I saw the progress and I could say, I did A and that led to B and that B is progress. And it was, it was powerful. So I became the sponge and wanted to learn everything I could. And um, still didn't know what a BCBA was, still didn't know what this whole field really was. Um, and then when I came to California is when I really started to put it together. Um, I, I, again, I can't always remember how much I've told you guys and how much I haven't because we've had so many shows together now. But, um, but my wife is from here and my wife really wanted to come home and really wanted to be back in Los Angeles. So uh, following her out here, I did because uh, I love her and I want to, you know, to make a life with her. And um, turns out California is a hotbed of ABA and there are a lot of BCBAs out here and there's a great program, a, a number of great programs today, but I got introduced to the program at Cal State LA, which is how I met our, our former and, uh, and again, future guest, Michelle Wallace, who, uh, who will be back with us soon. Um, and really got to develop and get exposed to the science of it all. And I was so lucky to be able to put these two pieces together, being really involved in the applied setting, then getting the science, and then simultaneously getting exposed to a group like AST, which I am really proud to be a part of, um, because they emphasize both. They emphasize the science, but they really emphasize how you use that science. And that was just the perfect marriage for me where I could be a student of ABA, become a scientist, and, uh, and, and in some ways fulfill my mom's dream of me being a doctor in a, in a roundabout way, um, but, uh, but still be so involved with people and involved with my kids and involved with my parents. And, um, and that all kind of comes full circle for me at Calaba because you know, not only do I get to talk to friends and talk to colleagues – you know, I get to talk to a lot of people who now are professionals, now are BCBAs, and now are doing their their work. Um, but I get to talk and reminisce and, and uh, talk about when they were working with me and when I got to train them and hear about the families. And, and some people, we share stories and, and parents are at the conference as well. And it's that reminder of, of the different things we, we get to touch, the different people, the different lives, um, and just how much they shape us because – uh, there's so many moments I remember that have shaped me professionally that a parent has taught me or the child has taught me. And so it's really exciting to be at a conference like this um, where it is a little bit more local, a little bit more regional and really know everyone and not just learn because that's that's key, but to be able to really share our experiences, reminisce about experiences um, because those are the things that – I know for me, really shape and teach me so much. Being in the moment, having a situation, having an experience, and and really have it shape where I go from moving forward. Because you know that that's life, and I think we learn the best that way. So, so that's my story. That's that's the I guess the eight minute version of it of how I got here. Um, 
we are going to be right back after this with with my guest uh, Mary Jane Weiss. Uh, so stick around. We'll take this commercial break and we'll get into our interview with Mary Jane. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we are committed to supporting families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, creating futures for individuals with autism. Visit AutismTherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. Why do people behave the way they do? The study of human behavior is one of the most interesting facets of life. Human behavior gets played out in a limitless number of ways. Now, there's a radio program that explains the why and the how of what we do. Human Behavior, What a Trip, is hosted by Dr. Jonathan Brower and will include interesting guests as well as call interaction from people like you. Let's have fun with this together. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for the host or guests, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt, and uh, I'm joined by today our guest, uh, Mary Jane Weiss. Um, Dr. Weiss is the executive director of research at Melmark, New England. Uh, she's also a professor at Endicott College, where she directs the master's program in ABA and autism. Uh, she has worked in the field of ABA and autism for over 25 years. And uh, if anyone out there has seen her speak uh, at different conferences uh, and different events, you know that she's just a great resource and a great source of information and just a, a fabulous pe- person to hear speak. Uh, Mary Jane, thanks for being on the show today. Thank you for having me, and thanks for that nice introduction. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny that we got to bump into each other yesterday. I know we're, uh, we're, we're talking while you're at Calaba today, um, but... You know, I I've loved every time I've seen you. It's been it's been great because I, I get a good sense of the person as well as the the research that you've done. So it's it's Thank enjoyable you. for me. Yeah. Thanks. So, you know, why? Um, I know you you actually gave a really big talk at Calaba uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, and I was hoping you could tell everyone what your talk was about. Sure. Um, I was invited to um, give the Glenda Wittenberger Memorial Lecture. That's an annual event um, in honor and memory of a great behavior analyst in California. And um, I spoke about some areas that were also research interests of hers. And the main thing I, I focused on was social significance and how do we 
ensure that the kinds of instruction that we're doing for learners on the autism spectrum is actually resulting in changes and in skills that are going to make a real-world difference in their lives. And I I hit upon a few different things that are related to that, um, but the main theme that I was trying to go for was I, I think we need to be critical analyzers of our own behavior and of our own decisions in treatment and intervention to see whether, in fact, what we're focusing on are the things that are going to matter for learners as they age. Are we teaching them skills that are going to give them vocational options? Are we teaching them skills that are going to make them have more meaningful social connections? Um, with members of their family and members of their community. And, and those were some of the kind of meta thoughts or themes that I was, um, that I, that I spoke about in that talk. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that it's funny. I feel like this is like a theme that people are really starting to get behind and, and are, it's really resonating. Um, last week we actually had um, Jim Ball on the show mm-hmm. and he started talking about a lot of these same concepts of, you know, sitting in an IEP and really thinking about like, what's our game plan here? What, you know, this goal is great, but where are we going with it? Absolutely. I think we, we have to think more about next environments and future Mm -hmm. environments. And what is the skill set that individuals actually need to succeed in those environments? And I think it becomes easy for us to kind of drift away from that. You know, we're following a particular curricular sequence or we're focused on the next stage of this particular skill. What kind of matching should they do next? And and sometimes we forget to really pull back from that and have a broad view and the, the big scale picture of, you know, well, what's important actually for this learner to know and, and why is it that we're focused on matching? What's the functional outcome of that? What are the kinds of skills that they're going to need it for. And I think the more we can, as a field and as individual agencies and providers, think about those issues, the better our programming will be. And you're right, it is something that's been talked about um, a lot lately. I think people are increasing our sensitivity to it. But one of the things that's always striking to me is that I realize that some of the best resources, for example, on functionality and on how we ensure that the skills we're working on are the skills that make sense for this individual, some of those resources are 25 years old and more. And I realize how long as a field we've been struggling with this issue and um, what a constant presence it is in our clinical challenges. You know, as I'm listening to this and I was kind of thinking about um, your presentation, you know, I was wondering about the idea of, you know, I, I'm really involved um, in the insurance landscape of, what, of what's happening around from a funding perspective. Uh, a big part of my role at AST is really helping families um, access and utilize their insurance to uh, obtain services. And I wonder how much of this is impacting or, or could positively impact that landscape, this idea of, because I hear science, you know, I hear you and it's, it's not about curriculum, it's about big picture, applying the science of ABA, and if we as a field embrace that more, would it lead to better discussions with an insurance company to say, hey, this is a science that has research to back it up, has a, a methodology that uh, you could get behind and you can track, and would that actually lead to uh, better a better situation for us as well as for uh, the the children and families we serve. 
I think that those are great questions, and that's really interesting. And I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that if we could find better ways to do that, we would translate what yeah. we do better to all kinds of collaborators, including funders. Yeah. And I do think that some of the issues that we're talking about are very relevant to those issues. You know, um, mm -hmm. the skills that ought to be funded, of course, are the skills that are going to matter. And, and the more we teach skills that lead to independence and increase vocational and, and other kinds of um, participation outcomes, the, the fewer services those individuals will need over time, the more yeah. we're preparing them to, um, to operate environments with less supervision and assistance from us. So I think they're all intertwined. And yeah. I think you're right. I think we're we're not we're not very good at understanding how to communicate that in in ways that that translate into those real world issues. Yeah, and I, I feel like, you know, the, the the you used the word curriculum and I'm I'm so glad you did because I, I for some reason I've always had a problem with curriculum. It, it to me it feels educational. And I, to me what I love about this field is that it you know it's so much bigger and i know that's been a big theme at calaba and at abai conferences that you know don't get hung up on educational services for kids with autism but this focus on the science of aba and you know i think that whether it be a giving parents a better idea of what we do and how they support it or giving funding sources a better idea you know, this idea of social validity and social significance, it, it just ties so much smoother into like the idea of a medical necessity or medically necessary services than curriculum, which just jumps out to me of, oh, school curriculum. You're right. And curriculum, you know, has a couple of other connotations that I think are, first of all, not accurate. Um, mm -hmm. And second of all, not helpful. One of them is that anytime we're talking about a curricula of any kind, generally, we're talking about a one-size-fits-all approach, which is really right. the antithesis of ABA. Yeah. You know, we never implement the same instructional program the same way, and even if two learners are working on the same goal, we might be approaching it in radically different ways and for different reasons, with a focus on different outcomes. And and I think that that, um, that, that is generally not the case when people follow curricula, so to speak. Um, so, you know, that's one reason why I, I think that's a problem. And the other reason is because you're absolutely right. You know, um, it's hard to kind of uh, specify or narrow an individual with autism's difficulties to something that is only relevant to the education realm because they're, the issues are so pervasive and affect every aspect of their life that it's it's really artificial to talk about um, problems that they would have in a school or educational context context without looking at the broader picture of how this individual's deficits and behavioral challenges impact their ability to do anything or to participate in any environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I. It's so glad to hear this because I feel like this is the, you know, being in conferences or, or, or working with different providers or even when I, I taught some some BCBA court work, coursework, um, I would see that clinging to the curriculum. And so it's so great to hear that there's a talk like what you just gave yesterday to inspire people to look at this from a, a bigger lens, a bigger picture of, uh, of, of the approach and of the science. Thank you. 
Um, um, and I hope that that message is heard. And I think, you know, I think also sometimes we're in environments where people are focused on it from an educational perspective, mm -hmm. but it's our responsibility to broaden the discussion at that point, I think, and, and point out to people the ways in which the, the needs and services are much, much, much more extensive than just educational remediation. You know, one of the things I'm kind of curious about, and um, I, uh, I, so I'm, I'm an, I think I told you yesterday, I, I'm an East Coaster originally. I, I was born, born in New York, and, and spent tons of times in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and and started um, learning the science and and practicing in uh, in those states. Um, and I noticed differences when I came to California um, nine years ago. I, I saw some differences in certain beliefs and certain. Um, Ways things were done, um, not massive, but but subtle and and at least noticeable. Have you seen different attitudes? Because um, I know you get to go to a lot of different places, speak to a lot of different audiences in in different states and different communities. Is there a difference in how people are um, responding to this viewpoint or this message, um, or is it a real universal uh, gathering of support? Well, that's interesting. I think I think the theme comes up everywhere, but you're absolutely right that there are pretty significant regional differences in sometimes in the approach to instruction, but also in the context in which treatment's provided. For example, you mentioned some of the East Coast states that I'm also very familiar with, yes. like New Jersey and Massachusetts. There are tremendous numbers of um, private schools in both of those mm -hmm. states, including private schools exclusively devoted to children with autism. Many, many, many. And um, those children receive very specialized services from expert behavior analysts. Um, and the, it is relatively easy to educate an individual in those environments, to get them into those kinds of environments. Then there are other states, I believe California is one of them, mm -hmm. where there are really not many specialized programs exclusively for children with autism. Um, and where there are many more individuals with autism uh, included in the public schools. Now, that's shifting a little bit. I mean, in every state, there are more and more kids in the public schools than there's ever been before, um, in part because of the rising numbers of individuals with autism and in part because public schools are, are rising to the challenge and trying to have in-house expertise that can serve this population of learners. But those kinds of, of regional differences are real and I think probably are more state-to-state -state, um, yeah. and, and based on kind of the culture of intervention in those settings. And then sometimes I see that there might be, um, you know, a particular approach, say pivotal response treatment that is more prominent in the West Coast that originated in California mm -hmm. um, and, you know, things of that nature. So you're right. It's not, it's not a uniform intervention or a uniform context across the country. And, and, you know, that just increases when you start looking internationally as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we are up against a commercial, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk some more with Mary Jane Weiss. We'll be right back. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. 
At AST, we are committed to supporting families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, creating futures for individuals with autism. Visit AutismTherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for the host or guests, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Um, We're joined today by Dr. Mary Jane Weiss. Um, Thank you so much for for calling us from Calaba. I know uh, you're probably on a pretty busy schedule today and, and definitely yesterday. Um, and dealing with the time change, too. No problem. I'm happy to be joining you. Uh, I, I love the, the, the topic we, we ended on, and I feel like we could do a whole show on just the regional differences of ABA. Uh, being a transplant, I, I, um, I find it fascinating. It was, one of the, the str- it was like the last thing I expected when I moved here. Um, but I can I, imagine. I can imagine. And, and you're right. It is, it's surprising because we think of ourselves as a fairly, you know, uniform group mm-hmm. of practitioners, and there are real differences. Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, you know, I, our field, it, it's interesting to me. I, I, one of the things I love but can be frustrating is that um, we're so tight as a field that we really are passionate about our science. We're passionate about the people we serve. We're passionate about the people we teach, but for a group of so such passionate people that agree on so much, we can also agree, disagree on a lot of things and very vehemently because of that passion. Do, do you think this regional differences plays a big role in that um, in, in terms of some of those differing of opinions? Um, I don't know, but I, I will say this. I completely agree with you about the amount of uh, disagreement or difference of opinion, and it is um, – it's a bit surprising. I mean, in, in one way, it's a healthy indicator of yeah. our ability to um, to dialogue with one another, to voice different opinions, to mm-hmm. to note the unanswered questions. My um, and, and so part of that's a healthy part of an evolving science, I think. But I yeah. also worry at times that when our dissension becomes publicly apparent, 
it mm-hmm. has the potential to undermine uh, the realization of our broader goals. Mm-hmm. And that piece of it is worrisome. I think, you know, we don't want to be seen as some kind of factitious group that can't get our act together or that mm-hmm. has fundamental differences in philosophy or approach, because I think that people will will disregard us and mm-hmm. will decide we've got some work to do internally before mm-hmm. um, we're ready to kind of join the public arena in a broader way. So I, I think that we have some work to do in terms of figuring out how we can best keep that healthy part of the dialogue um, alive in the science context yeah. without undermining our public policy goals. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. And, and I like what you said because – you know, our science should always evolve. It, it probably should never just be this completely stagnant thing. And I think about how many times when I disagree with someone on any topic, how much I learn from the dialogue of them explaining to me their point of view. So it's, I, I love what you said. Um, well, you know, the other thing I would add to that is I think it's important for each of us to realize that some of what we believe, so to speak, or prefer from a treatment or intervention perspective is based on the ways we were trained or mm. on our own history of implementation. Not everything that each of us does has been empirically verified to be mm. the best and most superior way of doing it. Some of it's a function of our own exposure and training. And so one of the things that I like to emphasize whenever I'm I'm um, talking to people about these things is like know in your own head which of the elements of your instruction are evidence-based and which of them are preferences that you choose to implement. And I think if each of us thought a little bit more critically about that, we'd mm. also be a bit more open to dialogue and discussion with colleagues mm-hmm. who might do it differently. It's you know I, I'm going to go back to uh, you, your your talk from yesterday in that when you just said preferences and I, it made me think. You know, I remember uh, really distinctly reading the um, the abstract from your talk, and or for your talk, and you specifically talk about you know incorporating the individual's preferences into the intervention, which would therefore increase the social significance of it, and like that correlation of we pick interventions that we have preferences for. Of course, we would want to incorporate the learner's preferences into it as well. It's like this natural human behavior that we're doing. Absolutely. And you're right. We're doing it, too. And so yeah. I think we've got to increase our awareness of that um, because we it's not the only variable that should determine mm. what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And it's not no, the most important variable. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Uh, you know, I, I, I want to go to a slightly different topic. Um, because you are uh, doing something that I actually really love. And I, this is one of those questions where I feel like I have you on this show. I cannot not talk about the work you're doing with the APBA. And that um, I love that ethics column you do in each newsletter. Um, oh, thank you. I love it. And, and I've read so many of them. And I, I don't know if everyone, whether it be other professionals out there, are, are fully aware of this, or even some of our parents are aware of, of those types of conversations. But your, your column, I think, is great because it really focuses on real life. I, I don't feel like I'm reading a textbook. Thank you. Well, that's um, that's been a great initiative of the APBA, and as you say, is contained in many issues of their newsletter. And I, I collaborate with that um, on that with um, David Roll and Gina Green, and. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the thing, the, the goal of that, you know, APVA is an organization that's so focused on meeting practitioner needs, which mm-hmm. um, is it's such a significant need, and there isn't another organization that, um, that does it. And I think it's been a tremendous resource to behavior analysts. I really do. And one of the things that I think that's so compelling to me about ethics is, you know, I think it's a very unique skill set because I think that it has several components. You know, knowledge of the BACB's guidelines for responsible conduct is certainly one. Um, but the other critical component is application mm-hmm. of those guidelines. How does it apply in this particular context to this particular challenge? And the ethical dilemmas that we're all faced with throughout our careers are extremely complex and extremely nuanced. And I think that it's difficult to just know your guidelines and act ethically. I think that we learn over time what that application skill set is comprised of. And so I firmly believe that the best way to teach people about ethics and to continue our ongoing education in ethics is by application of the standards to real-world dilemmas. And um, I think that we learn so much from those discussions and from mm-hmm. and we we have so much to share with one another mm-hmm. um, in terms of not reinventing the wheel. Um, you know, being able to have a forum in which we outline different kinds of dilemmas that many of us face mm-hmm. helps us to start a discussion about, well, what are the critical elements we should focus on here? What are the mm-hmm. aspects of the guidelines that offer some insight here? And then how do we take that guideline and translate it into what should be done in this particular case, mm-hmm. given all of the other factors, all of our other obligations, and all of the other guidelines that might have relevance? Um, and we do have, you know, we have an active group um, of responders to that, and people sometimes write in those um, very, you know, clear dilemmas that they're focusing on. So um, I feel like it it hits that pulse because it is a very alive and vibrant kind of um, uh, service that we provide to people that is trying to take real-world dilemmas, analyze them in a professional way that can then, you know, help guide people not just in that case but in similar cases that other people might be experiencing elsewhere. And it's one of the things we get a lot of feedback about, and I'm delighted to hear that people I've heard of, like, um, organizations where, you know, in their team meetings, uh, they'll periodically review one of them. And I think that's, wow. like, that's so great. It's, it's exactly the kind of dissemination and usefulness that, that we aim for. Oh, it's, it's fabulous. And I love I, – I, I, for me, I just can't stress enough. I feel like you, you take coursework. I, I go back to when I was taking my – working on my master's degree, working towards my BCBA. And they, my, my professors really stressed ethics, and they, and they did a good job of making sure we knew the BACB guidelines and we were reviewing different codes of ethics beyond just ABA, so we had a sense of how these codes were developed. But when you're in the field in a real-life situation, it's never black and white. It's never so clean and... To have it, these it never examples. is. I mean, I always say to people, one of the strategies that I teach people too um, is to to confer with colleagues, to get opinions from respected mentors, mm-hmm. supervisors, colleagues when you're in an ethical dilemma. And I think one of the things that happens in that case is we it, we sometimes get more anxious because we get slightly different opinions, which mm-hmm. just goes to show you how complex all of this really is. 
mm-hmm. you could have three very well-respected, perfectly ethical clinicians who are veterans in the field who might not say the exact same thing when consulted about it. And I think that's another element of it that sometimes makes it confusing. But I think mm-hmm. what you will find in that situation is that you'll get IOA on a few elements of what ought to be done, and that kind of rises to the top. Here there's consensus from, you know, several people about which direction to go in. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think that – and one of the things I also emphasize to my students and trainees and colleagues is I think it's imperative that we are resources to one another for mm-hmm. that. And I think mm-hmm. every one of us needs to help each other um, through those those different kinds of dilemmas. And, like, when I get something from a former student or someone I used to work with that's in the ethical realm, I mm-hmm. write back that email right away because oh. I, I want to reinforce the my colleague for reaching out, for trying mm-hmm. to get some perspective, and for really kind of um, – trying to figure out with multiple sources of information what might be the best course of action. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, I, I, I think that's awesome. And, and you're right. I think we, for you to reinforce that is great because it's scary to be on the other side of things. I know sometimes it's scary to ask for help in some of these ethical dilemmas because sometimes you feel like I should know this or I should know what to do. And it can be a little intimidating to reach out to a colleague. So to get that type of response and, and to be reinforcing of one another's efforts in that regard, I think is, is great. It's good exactly. Us. And, you know, yeah. you mentioned APBA's columns, which I think are great, and I think people use them in an archival way, which is terrific, too, yeah. to look back at them. Another service that very few people are aware of is ABAI has an ethics hotline, um, which is really? uh, run by John Bailey. And I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's a little red phone on their website, and it immediately sends an email. Um, you can immediately send an email about your ethical dilemma, and um, Dr. Bailey will either answer himself or get an answer from an expert in the field within 48 hours. And, and just to throw in there, I mean, I, I, in case our listeners don't know who Dr. Bailey is, I mean, he's he's one of the best ABA people in terms of ethics, I think. You know, he his talks are always, yeah, I mean, he's, everyone is like the gold standard with him and, and, and looks to it. So that is, I had, I didn't even know that service was available. Very actually. few people know about it because I, I frequently present on ethics and I, I always mention that among all the other resources, including the APBA column, but I always mention that as well. And I, it is my general experience that almost no one knows about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I've used I it like... myself. And, I mean, it's just, again, it's it's that can we get some IOA on this? Can I get some yeah. really expert opinion? Can I go to somebody that's, that's really objective outside of this and is going to answer from the perspective of our field and the guidelines mm-hmm. that we all embrace? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, well, we got another commercial break there. They're sneaking up on me today I'm, I'm, you know, as we go back and forth. But we're going to take one more break and then come back for our final segment with uh, Dr. Mary Jane Weiss. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. 
At AST, we are committed to supporting families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-278-1520. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. Connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Autism Spectrum Therapies, creating futures for individuals with autism. Visit AutismTherapies.com or call 866-278-1520. Maybe there is something to a 3,000-year-old healing system. Tune in every week to Holistic Healing with Herbs and Chinese Medicine with hosts Michelle Collins and Andres Fagara. Herbs, acupuncture, qigong, and food can work together to treat most chronic and acute health problems. Michelle and Andres will present discoveries intended to enhance your health. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Ancient therapies can help you in modern times. Are you looking for a 21st century first aid kit? You don't have to suffer nor take on the increasing expense of health care. Tune in to Good Vibrations. Catch the wave to better health. Your host, Lynn Waldrop, will show you how many common and even uncommon aches, pains, and ills can be remedied through sound, color, and light. While it may sound like these are new concepts, believe it or not, these are actually ancient methods that still make sense today. Create a healthy life. Listen Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for the host or guests, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt, and we're here with our last few minutes with uh, Dr. Mary Jane Weiss. Um, you know, I, I, I can't have you on the show without talking a little bit about, um, about what you've been up to lately. I know... Um, you know, you've got the the talk that we were talking about uh, from Calava and the APBA column. Um, but I know you do a lot of different research and a lot of different work in, in your different capacities. Um, do you have something going on right now um, or different projects going on that are uh, at a point that you can maybe share with uh, the audience? Sure. Um, the project that I'm most involved with now at Melmark is um, an assessment of uh, communication modality, efficiency, and preference in learners with autism. And um, I got interested in this work originally when I was at Rutgers with my colleagues there, especially Bob LaRue and Kim Sloman. And um, we had done a study there that looked at tacting or labeling of items and uh, teaching a card touch response, a vocal response, and a sign language response. And what we found, um, we had looked at both 
efficacy of the instructional format and um, preference. And we found, not surprisingly, that learners not only learned differentially in different modalities, as we might expect and predict given the diversity we see in the population of learners with autism, but we also found that there were often clear preferences. And what it, um, what it made us start thinking about is whether, you know, we could add this to our list of individualized assessments that we do of learners in terms of figuring out more data-based ways to decide on things like communication modality preference. And so I've now extended that work in some additional ways um, with my colleagues at Melmark. And um, we've been doing it in a slightly different uh, format. We're looking at manding because of mm -hmm. its importance in terms of spontaneous requesting. And uh, we changed it from a card touch response to a picture exchange communication system response um, because mainly if we have a learner that's going to use pictures to communicate, we generally go with text. Right. Um, and we also wanted to look at transfer to full day Manding, and so we've been looking at spontaneous communication. And similar to the results that I had gotten um, during the initial study at Rutgers, we've found that, um, that learners, in fact, do learn quite differentially. One of the more interesting aspects of it for me is that um, just kind of anecdotally, I was always interested in what the team would predict because very often in these discussions of modality, there are very strong opinions about which direction we should go in, and um, they're not always accurate. And we found that in some cases, Team members expected a learner to do fantastic in sign, and we found that actually nothing was acquired in sign, and they were a much better match to PECS or to the iPad. We also had an electronic condition that we added. Um, and we found also that, that preference was very strong and very clearly demonstrated. And I, I feel really good about that work because I feel like it has so many levels on which it helps us. Number one, it ensures from a social significance perspective that we're actually teaching a communication modality that this person is likely to use and yeah. prefers to use. And I think it's, you know, we're completely off the mark if we're teaching a communicative response repertoire that the individual does not want to engage in. And I think it has such implications also for behavior reduction because we focus so much on functional communication training. And we should make sure that that modality is going to be one that's a low response effort and that's preferred if we're going to compete with the challenging behavior um, in that context. And I also like it from a systems perspective um, in terms of the teams that we all work in, because I think that these are sometimes very difficult discussions, and it's hard to figure out how to resolve opinion-based differences. But as behavior analysts, we should always strive to do that with data and with data on the individual level. And so I think it's a, it's a nice protocol for, for resolving some of those issues in a way that's highly individualized and data-based. It sounds like a great project, and I'm, I'm really excited um, that you, you – and you mentioned it – is that you are incorporating the, the technology element, um, incorporating the iPad piece, because that was going to be my first thought or question is, is that more preferential, and how does that work? Like, I'd be curious to find out if you guys ultimately saw more kids um, gravitate towards the iPad or, or those types of technology versus a sign or versus a PEX. 
Right. Um, that's a great question. I'm very curious about that, too. And, you know, the iPad's gotten so much attention, and mm-hmm. there's so much enthusiasm for it. But we really need research and, and data exactly. on, on helping us figure out how to incorporate it, where to incorporate it, who to incorporate it for. Um, mm-hmm. And so I love that we added that, too. I think it's important for us to try to get as much data on, on the application of it as we can. And um, we, it's a real preliminary, so I can't really speak to that in a in a major way, except to sure. say that um, in the first couple of learners that have come through the protocol, um, we had one in particular that had extremely great acquisition with the yeah. iPad um, that was comparable to his other best condition, which was PECS. Um, and yet we still saw a preference for PECS in the preference assessment procedure, which mm. surprised all of us, including the research team. Um, but I, that, that I have not nearly enough participants or data sure. to actually speak to that in any intelligent way. But I yeah. hope over time that as we send more and more students through the protocol that we will be able to say something about that. I mean, I, I can't wait to hear more about what you guys come up with and, and, and once you get more of the data because um, I, I can think of so many different conversations I've had over the years with different BCBAs working on programs who are thinking, what is the best modality? And how do I go about figuring this out? And, and this type of assessment tool and this type of research, uh, it could be a great start for a lot of us out there who are working with these little ones every day, trying to figure out what is that best step Absolutely, and I think the struggles are the same, right? So the conversations that you're having are the same conversations that I'm having, and I think we do have some universal struggles. Yeah. And I think if we can find database solutions to those, then we're really fulfilling the goals of our science. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, thank you. You know, I I really want to thank you today uh, for taking time out. I know you're at Calaba. Um, you know, before you go, I, I do want to make sure it occurred to me that, you know, you and I are, are in uh, ABA acronym mode, and we were talking about the APBA, but I know uh, we have a lot of parents listening who maybe um, aren't as familiar with it, um, but I know it's, um, it stands for the Association of Professional Behavior Analysts. Correct. And um, from my experience, and I don't know if you've had the same, I've had a lot of families um, who have been able to get some good information off of uh, the, the website for the group. Um, who've been able to learn a couple of good things because there's so much of not just the um, the clinical and applied piece of it, but there's even information about like self-insured insurance plans that fund ABA or oh, absolutely, um, APBA has been extremely involved in all of those public policy issues. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, I think it is a useful um, organization for parents to um, consider joining as well and having access to those resources. And, and, and for our listeners out there who maybe want to check it out, can you give them the website of how they could uh, maybe get a little bit more information on the APBA? Um, yes, I should know that off the top of my head. But I, I do know that um, that if you Google it, it comes up. It's not the first thing that comes up. The okay. first thing that comes up is the Power Boats Association. Ah, very nice. <laughs> well, and for everyone, it does stand for the Association of Professional, Professional Behavior, Behavior Analysts. Analysts. So that'll right. Other get good parent too. resource um, sites, which you've probably talked about in other shows, mm-hmm. though, I particularly like ASAT, the Association for Science and Autism Treatment, yep. and the Cambridge Center's websites. And actually, for anyone out there, I've, the ASAT website you referenced, um, I've actually used some of the articles and some of the information there um, to have uh, give to insurance companies to help them fund uh, and show them the uh, the research behind uh, 
ABA and get them to fund different programs that in the past they have uh, denied. So excellent, it's a good resource out there for families too. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Um, I, I hope thoroughly you enjoyed Calabra. it. I hope you invite me back. It was fun <laughs> to talk about these things, and I, I really your program sounds fantastic. Well, I am definitely taking you up on that because I, I was going to hope you uh, came back as well. So we'll do this again. Sounds great. Thanks, Mary Jane. Um, you know, last thoughts, everybody. Uh, we've got a couple minutes left. Uh, thanks for uh, for tuning in today. I I know this was, uh, you know, as I said, a, a clinical show and we got into the acronyms. But I think it's great for everyone out there to hear some of the conversations that we as BCBAs and behavior analysts are having with one another to understand some of the ethical conversations we have, to hear about the research we're doing, um, because I think it, it helps us have a, a, a fuller and richer perspective of what goes into treatment. There's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes, and I like when parents get exposed to that as well, and, and for our professionals out there uh, to be able to take a, these conference conversations and, and bring them to you. If you can't be at Calaba, get a piece of Calaba, because uh, there's a lot of learning we can all do out there. Um, as always, if you have questions, please, please, please send me an email, more info at autismtherapies.com. But I know most of you guys are more comfortable on Facebook, so feel free to post questions there as well. Um, really excited. I, I think we have some great shows coming up. I was able to talk to uh, a lot of different friends just yesterday at Calaba who, uh, who want to come on to the show and some friends who want to come back. So I think I have a couple of really good show ideas that are in the works that we're going to bring to you in the next few weeks. Um, I know in the past show I mentioned the questions I've been getting about um, working on aggressive behaviors and, and how to approach that as a parent. And I think we have some guests who are going to give you some good resources and information of, of how to get started, uh, particularly how to uh, conduct an assessment or, or more so what to look for in the assessment and, and who to seek out to get that. So we'll talk about that in some coming shows. Hope you guys have a great week, have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Take care. We hope you've had some questions about autism answered this week. Autism Spectrum Radio can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Please join us for another edition next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.